that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal, your source for all things immortal. I'm uh, Ilya Stambler, PhD. I live in Israel. Uh, my main occupation is uh, chief science officer of an association called VETEC, the Movement for Longevity and Quality of Life here in Israel, but I also do research, um, the multidisciplinary research of aging, mostly aging and life extension. Uh, but I'm not a full-time researcher. I'm also an activist, a public advocate for longevity research, uh, not just in my association, VETEC, but also in some other associations, also international, like International Longevity Alliance, International Society on Aging and Disease, I wrote two books, uh, one that is called Longevity Promotion, Multidisciplinary Perspectives, and another is History of Life Extensionism. Uh, so that's basically me. Wow, so you have a very holistic understanding of the entire longevity field, it seems, right? Yes, yes, Th that's my approach. I, I don't believe in a very narrow specialization, especially in aging. Aging is such an encompassing phenomenon that you just have to be multidisciplinary to tackle from different things. Well, I'm so glad we have you here today. I know it's a little bit difficult with the time difference between Israel and Canada, but we're super happy to have you here. Before we go more into the questions around your work, we want to ask a question that we always ask at the beginning of our podcast, which is about the concept of immortality, right? So if I were to ask you, Ilya, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? Uh, well, that's a question I often have to address in, in various interviews, and I always say the same, that actual immortality is an impossibility, a logical impossibility. You cannot uh, say I've lived forever. As you cannot say, uh, I've counted to infinity. But what is possible is so-called uh, biological immortality or potential immortality, meaning that uh, there is no limit to lifespan. It is true for life generally, which doesn't have any predetermined limit on its development. It is true for individual organisms. So I do believe in it. And that's why I also believe in the possibility of life extension. I realize that our current technological capabilities are limited to enable uh, actual um, life extension perhaps even in, lifetime, in our lifetime, but generally it is a theoretical possibility to extend the life even indefinitely. So if I were to ask you whether you'd want to have an extended life indefinitely without, you know, the complications of aging, I guess infinite health span, you'd be for it, right? Uh, once again, not infinite. It's a logical impossibility, but to strive uh, forever, strive as much as possible to extend uh, my life uh, for one day and then another day. Yes, I would definitely want to live as long as possible by technological possibilities and also by, uh, by, by moral development. Okay, okay, sorry, understood, understood. Perfect. Before we dig into a little bit more about your knowledge with, I guess, the history of life extension, we wanted to ask what inspired you to, I guess, start looking at aging and longevity? How did you get involved, especially because your background, I believe, was initially in literature, if I'm right? Yes, yes. I'm also often asked this question, and uh, I always wonder why other people aren't involved, you know, not interested in this, because it's uh, such a basic uh, question of, of human nature to be interested in one's yeah. mortality and one's aging. Actually, the day are a little bit um, abnormal for not uh, taking an interest in this. But uh, for me personally, I was interested in this from an early age, probably from the age of six, when I realized that I'm probably very likely going to die. I, I thought, uh, is there something that, that could be done? I've maintained this interest ever since. And and for quite a lot of time, there wasn't any a way to, to express this interest or get involved. But now um, there are more and more uh, possibilities. And even in English literature, yes, I have an main English literature. I also have a previous background in biomedical engineering um, in, in here in Israel and Technion and also in Russia. 
But uh, even when studying literature, I always uh, was interested in this uh, topic. A main topic was uh, heroic death, uh, heroism, and heroic de heroism and heroic death in uh, English and Russian literature. So uh, I argue that death is nothing good. You know, people they talk about a heroic death. I don't believe any death is good. So if you don't believe death is good, you have to, to strive for, for life extension for for prevention of death. So it's all ties together. I, I've always been interested in this. It, uh, no, no, uh, um, uh, no verving uh, uh, from this topic, but uh, I did approach it from different angles. Now my angle is more activism as well as uh, multidisciplinary research. So given that you're involved in activism, and I know you have a whole book about the history of life extension, I want to ask, because nowadays I feel like there's still some opposition to, like if I told somebody, hey, I'm a life extensionist, They'll tell me, yeah, it's a little bit weird, right? That's, uh, I'm not so sure about you. So I'm wondering, is there more opposition now than at any other point in history? Or is there more acceptance now than at any other point? I would say there are more acceptance. Um, I would divide this debate into um, four subpopulations of people. One subpopulation simply ignores the subject. So it's the main source of opposition. You cannot do anything if uh, people are not interested, that just don't wish to, to talk with you. The second category of opposition is just people who want to oppose you, if you just want to cancel this research. And on the other side, there are people who are interested uh, you know, in, the, um, in the level of, um, of uh, getting an article here and there on Facebook. And uh, there are people who really get involved in activism and research, like I hope um, I do. So, uh, so I would say that the, the, the former two categories are diminishing. Uh, they're much less people who are completely disinterested, much less people who openly oppose it, and much more people who are um, interested and who actively involved in the field. So I would say that the balance is shifting to the uh, to the direction of, of more involvement. I have two explanations for this. Uh, one is our population is aging. Uh, uh, there's just no, no way around it. You know, people talk about population aging uh, for, for decades, but now we, we really see this happening. So, and the more people see this happening, the more they get interested in this topic. And second, the technologies are um, evolving, are developing, no matter what you do. So uh, it's kind of a, a stick and a carrot, you know, where people see the, the possibilities as well as driven from the, from the potential problems and challenges. So from these two forces, I think the, the involvement in the life extension field will only grow. I completely understand the logic with, I guess, older people wanting to learn more about their aging and longevity. But I, I want to be a little bit careful wording this question, but through history, is there some type of correlation between a person's position or culture in the world and how they're opposed with life extension technology? You would be surprised, but in my work, I found that the more uh, the younger people are more interested in this uh, because they're also open, more open-minded uh, and they, they also believe in the future. They're more active generally. All the people generally interested in their health, uh, but they uh, usually don't express uh, far-reaching hopes and that uh, could even be a problem. But young people, especially, uh, you know, with progressively driven people um, are very interested uh, usually. Uh, but otherwise, I don't see any segmentation of the population. You know, you, you'll find life extension is in, among religious, among atheists, among uh, all walks of life, actually. I think it's kind of a basic philosophy that's not related to your occupation or, or other beliefs. It's something that you either in the ignoring camp or you're interested camp. So there's a crossover between the camps. Right. I mean, if you're not interested in your life or your death, I uh, have some questions for you. So <laughs> that's pretty interesting. But regarding, because you mentioned how nowadays we have a better understanding of aging, right? So my question is, at what point did we actually truly understand aging, right? Like we had developed a framework for it. Like nowadays, everyone's talking about the damage repair paradigm, the hallmarks of aging. But 
when did we first develop that framework? And before then, what did we really think of aging as a whole? Uh, right. First of all, we don't understand aging. Let us be clear about it. We don't understand aging. We don't have a theory of aging, like in the usual sense of a theory. Something that can describe the system, that can predict the behavior of the system. We don't have anything of this kind. Uh, we have about uh, 300, they say, uh, maybe more um, uh, various approaches, because ev everything changes with age. So uh, you can explain the aging from every angle possible, from every process possible that takes place in the body, also in the environment. So we don't really understand aging, but um, I would say that uh, the first truly really scientific theory of aging based on uh, biological observations was done about 120 years ago by Elimechnikov, a Russian-French biologist, actually a Nobel laureate, um, who I believe formulated the first truly scientific um, uh, theory of aging in the modern sense. But there are, of course, theories of aging before, like uh, vitalistic theories that we're losing some uh, vital force. Also, the, the humoralistic theories, like um, the, the impairment of balance between elements. All we, had, uh, in, uh, we had all this in alchemy. We had all this in, uh, in uh, traditional medicine, uh, traditional Indian medicine, Chinese medicine. Uh, they all had different uh, explanations for aging and age-related diseases, but uh, I would say the, um, uh, the modern period um, in, uh, in gerontology started with Mechnikov about 120 years ago. In 1903, uh, he formulated the concept of gerontology, the scientific study of aging. So in this 120 years, this is what we have in terms of scientific development. And there is very long um, uh, way to go, I believe. On the one hand, it's a little bit pessimistic, you know, 120 years, we still don't have a cure. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, it's optimistic. You just think it's just only, it's only 120 years that we consider it scientifically. Uh, you can imagine what can happen in the next 120 years. And I must bring the example of, of, of aviation. You know, Wright brothers also did their first flight in 1903. And look uh, where we are now in terms of aviation. And if we invested uh, even the a small percentage of resources into uh, gerontology, into life extension, I believe we could, uh, uh, we could uh, achieve uh, much greater results. Mm -hmm. So how exactly do you think the perception of life extension has changed over time? I'm sure at some point, you know, if you said, oh yeah, I want to live forever, people would look at you like you're either very optimistic or a little bit crazy. So how has the perception changed over time? Uh, well, you, you don't say uh, I want to live forever, never. <laughs> uh, once again, I, you can say I want to extend my life and that's perfectly fine. And uh, I don't uh, divide people into radical life extension uh, and, uh, and practical life extensions. Uh, if you're a little bit uh, aware of the field, you understand that right now we are probably not uh, going to um, make it in terms of life extension with the, with the current technologies. Uh, but it does mean that uh, radical life extension is not possible in principle with uh, with new emerging technologies. So we have to be realistic on the one side and uh, optimistic on the other uh, and work for the development of the field. Uh, uh, how did it change? Uh, uh, generally, I believe it changed uh, uh, the perception of aging change with the uh, with the existing uh, uh, general scientific paradigms and with existing technologies. For example, in the 1950s, uh, when um, uh, the paradigm of molecular biology emerged, uh, suddenly the entire aging field uh, moved into the direction of molecular biology, as well as cybernetics. Also in the 50s, uh, the, the entire field started in, uh, to talk in terms of um, computation, in terms of prediction. Uh, and before that, there were more discussions in terms of uh, even the physics, uh, of physiology. Uh, so uh, it did change in terms of the scientific paradigm. Um, and also, 
aging research is a very integral part of, of the entire scientific uh, milieu, of the entire scientific field. You can, just cannot uh, deal with aging without treating all the other subjects, um, the, the entire human biology, the entire environment. So and I think that's also a source of, um, of uh, the, the strength of the field, a source of development when we involve additional fields, so when we cross inseminate between the fields, when we create synergies. That's, I believe, how the, the whole uh, topic of life extension will, uh, will advance. So I also want to ask then, because I know the ways people have tried to achieve life extension nowadays, we have a very scientific approach. I mean, people do focus on the holistic things as well, like exercise and diet. But I know that wasn't always a case in history. I remember reading part of your book and there was things like testicular grafting as well. Very interesting theories on how hormones could be involved. And I think you talked about France and Germany and the Soviet Union, how the changes have happened. So I was curious, could you share with our listeners how some of the ways of achieving life extension have changed from, you know, a very holistic approach to the sort of very scientific approach we have now? Uh, well, I think the correct dichotomy would be not between uh, holistic and scientific, as a, uh, but between holistic and reduction. Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, so, you know, t t the, the two um, ways to look at, um, at phenomena, either uh, as a whole or as, as, as a mechanism, as a uh, as, uh, system composed of part. You know, sometimes uh, you don't see uh, uh, the forest for the trees, but sometimes you also don't see uh, the trees for the forest. So um, it's it's a, a two basic modes of human um, cognition that we usually share, perhaps uh, through time sharing. Sometimes we're holist, sometimes we're reductionist. Uh, you know, sometimes we, we see the trees, sometimes we see the forest, uh, and uh, somehow somehow we manage in the world. But um, in um, in aging research, often you know people are stuck in, in certain resolution. You are either a holist or a reductionist. You either see the, the small parts or you see the, the whole uh, the whole picture. And I hope there will be also more crosstalk between these two uh, uh, between these two approaches uh, to to create a, a more uh, balanced, more synergistic uh, way forward. Uh, but in terms of, uh, of time sharing, yes, there were periods when there were more on emphasis on a holistic approach or a reductionist approach. Uh, I believe it had to do with uh, with disappointment. Uh, you know, sometimes the reductionism promised a lot uh, without delivering. It promised to understand the entire mechanism of the human body and just uh, fix a few things. And then uh, the, it was humbled by by the complexity of the of the process. And then uh, the the, um, the interest shifted in the direction of holism. But then you see that holism, okay, you can talk about the whole, but what do you actually mean? What is this whole? And, and uh, you know, where people uh, exercised and did well for, for thousands of years and they still live about the same. So it's probably not um, a very um, um, impactful approach in terms of um, uh, radical change. Uh, so, and then the, 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 there was a, a shift back to, to holism. But I believe in an in, imbalance, in, in uh, uh, we, we do need some kind of combination of holistic uh, mechanism, uh, sorry, um, uh, holistic perception and, and mechanistic um, uh, understanding. Uh, so I think that's the way forward. Mm -hmm. So shifting gears a little bit, I, I'm sure anyone in the audience listening right now would be able to agree with the fact that currently in today's day and age, there is a huge emphasis on the point that you are what you eat. Eating is very important and it can affect how you feel, how long you live, ideas alongside that. So when did this idea of, uh, I guess, restricting your diet or controlling your diet being recognized as having a role in how long you live and longevity in general? Yes, um, uh just in about a couple of weeks, they're going to be published a new book by Springer uh, on um, nutrition and longevity, where I have a chapter um, on uh, longevity and foods and myth, legend, and history, basically addressing this question. 
so uh, the main point I argue is that uh, once again, you cannot uh, look at, uh, at uh, longevity foods as a simple uh, list of ingredients, something you mix together, put in your body and uh, you will live long. You actually have to consider the entire environment um, and also the, um, uh, the morality and, and the, the intellectual uh, beliefs, the humanistic, uh, the humanistic beliefs. Uh, so a, a part of it was always a, a concept of moderation. If you look at history, you see that the concept of moderation was always a part of, of uh, longevity regimens. It's a part of general uh, morality. Uh, so uh, I would say forever, forever, at least for a few thousand years, we have records. Uh, people uh, are good for moderation in, in food as a, as a way toward longevity. And uh, in more scientific terms, it was formulated at the beginning of the 20th century, and not by Clive McKay, as many people think, uh, who uh, first proposed the concept of color restriction, but earlier by Lafayette Mendel. Uh, and others, but once again, it's a very, a very um, uh, entrenched idea that you have to be moderate in, in nutrition to, uh, to achieve longevity. Uh, and I think that's one of the, uh, one of the few uh, proven prescriptions that we still have, uh, you know, you don't have to starve yourself, of course not, but uh, uh, you, you have to be, to be moderate. Yeah, well, I'm glad that's something we're encouraging now, because I know at some point in history, alchemy and eating mercury was something. So I'm glad we're part of, you know, we skipped that part of history now. We're something a little bit more scientific and realistic. Um, but I want to ask, um, because you're an activist and you're probably one of the more outspoken people in the space. I know there's a lot of people talking about this, but you've put a lot of books out there. You're part of a lot of organizations doing a lot. And I want to ask in terms of who you're trying to get to listen, because that's your role as an activist, right? You want people to make change for the actual to be real actionable things happening. But when you're doing this act, sort of activist work, who do you want to listen and what exactly do you want them to change? Uh, right. First of all, I want uh, people to take an interest and uh, as a result of interest, I want them to take action. Uh, the, the, camp, uh, the camp of um, ignoring, the camp of uh, posing is still too, too large uh, for, for a change to, to happen. Of course, it's no comparison to what was uh, 20 years ago. I started this activism about 20 years ago um, uh, with the first site we created on life extension. Uh, and in these 20 years, there's a uh, really title uh, change of attitudes uh, in favor of acceptance, uh, but still not enough uh, to, to really invest uh, large intellectual material resources into the field. So that's our goal as, as activists uh, to, uh, to get people involved. Like any social movement, we need more people. We need more people involved. We need more people interacting. Uh, and at all the levels, uh, I wouldn't say that we only need the decision makers, but we need everybody. We, we need uh, researchers, we need uh, uh, public figures, well, we need uh, everybody basically. Because even decision makers, if you don't see massive interest, they don't um, take notice. They, they go uh, to, to topics where do see the public interest. That's just uh, how, they, how they work. So if we want to, um, uh, to dedicate a, a large uh, a proportion of, of effort, of resources uh, to the goal of uh, health longevity for all, we, we need to convince people that it's actually a worthwhile goal that uh, the people should strive for. Uh, same as uh, for the green movement, same for any movement for, for the rights of certain categories of people. When people understand that this is an important goal for society, they should uh, get organized and, and uh, do activism. So one common policy change we've heard is to increase funding for research on the aging process. However, governments only, as we all know, governments only have a limited amount of funding available to them. And to add things, you need to take away from something else. So if it were up to you, where would you take the money away from? And would you give it back to aging-related research? 
Uh, right, so let's start uh, with the fact that the governments allocate money not so much uh, by, by careful calculation of, of public needs, uh, but uh, uh, very, very uh, strongly by, by lobbying, by, by special interests, uh, who has the, the loudest mouth of all, who has the, 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 the largest wallet of all. So that's how they, they distribute the interest. So uh, that's our goal as activists to, to make pub the public realize that uh, this is a very important uh, topic. And then the priorities will shift automatically. Then we'll see where to take, uh, because uh, that's actually the, the goal for, for the entire public. And uh, right now, the, the distribution of funding is simply ridiculous. I can say for Israel, you know, out of um, a few billion dollars uh, uh, governmental uh, research funding, uh, aging research gets about zero. You know, um, there were a few years when, when thanks to our advocacy, uh, there were a few millions. Now it's zero, so it's completely uh, disproportionate uh, compared to the importance of the subject. So at least we would uh, want to make the uh, the allocation a little bit more reasonable, uh, considering that aging is uh, the main uh, challenge of public health and of, of the entire society. Uh, so uh, and then we can see where to take maybe the military, maybe some other uh, some other departments. Uh, but another solution, uh, even more practical, is to understand that the aging is actually a part of the um, uh, of uh, the agenda of, of uh, many relevant frameworks. For example, if there are governmental um, funding for research in in medicine, aging should be a necessary part of it. So, if you issue a call for research proposals, aging should be there. So you don't actually have to take from um, any such agency. You actually just incorporate aging into into the into the call into the into the agenda. And that way, everybody win. Even in the military, right now they're even starting some uh, some programs uh, to test anti-aging. So they understand it's also important for the military. So it's not in a, so much taking from somebody as, as incorporating it into into uh, the relevant uh, agendas as, as a necessary element, as a as a, um, as a uh, relevant uh, as a relevant element. So I understand that. Yeah, I think it's important that we have to have the government involved in sort of making these decisions. But there's also the issue that I thought of, which was, I mean, at the end of the day, money is a motivating factor for a lot of people, right? And especially the pharmaceutical companies, which ultimately, you know, we need them to have some sort of therapy for life extension. They often, I mean, there's no aging like pill right now that, you know, they can all go by like, oh, you know, you have a 10 year pipeline from concept to, you know, out on the market. And I don't know, it's, I was thinking of in terms of profit, it seems a lot better to, you know, continuously treat rather than, you know, to focus on health. So I understand, yes, there has to be maybe some mindset change here, but do you have any ideas in terms of how we can actually incentivize these pharmaceutical companies or maybe even other organizations to start funding and to be looking into more aging-related research? A great question. Uh, yes, right now, pharma is often disincentivized uh, to go into prevention. Uh, you know, just just simply from talking, then you understand that they much prefer a blockbuster pill uh, when you're about to die, they, they can just uh, give it to you. Uh, and also, um, uh, prevention is much less patentable. Uh, you know, uh, it's probably uh, also much cheaper. Uh, so, with a lot of um, uh, uh, a lot of lack of incentives, uh, but we shouldn't uh, uh, place all all our bets, all our hopes on on pharma. First of all, what we advocate, first of all, is is more um, uh, public spending on basic research because that's that's the basis. 
as, as you said, I wish we all had a pill uh, that we could buy right now, then we'd be all um, standing in line to the, to the pharmacy. Um, uh, but right, we don't have such a pill uh, or even a combined treatment, so we need basic research. We need to understand aging uh, well enough uh, to be able to, um, uh, to develop um, a comprehensive therapy. And for that, uh, we, we only need uh, probably uh, public, uh, public funding, uh, uh, publicly funded research. And that's also important because it gives uh, people entitlement to the results. If uh, the research is funded from, um, uh, from public uh, Money, the, the public also has the entitlement to the results. So we, once again, you don't uh, uh, give the, the entire rule to, to pharma. Uh, but yes, uh, pharma has a, a place of, of its own. It's good in distributing, probably not so good in, in basic research. Uh, that's the role of the, of the publicly funded um, agencies. But in terms of distribution, in terms of advertising, they may be important. And uh, there could be ways uh, to incentivize them as well. Um, uh, I'm not sure exactly how in my book I even uh, suggested uh, uh, taxing uh, the, those who, who don't develop, and, uh, develop um, uh, aging therapies and uh, giving tax benefits to those who do develop. Uh, that could be one way to, um, to consider. Uh, but generally, I think that the main way to incentivize also pharma is, is, is by us. Is, is we if we really create a public movement for, uh, for anti-aging, for, for preventive therapy, then they'll have no choice but to, to develop uh, those treatments. Because uh, uh, they also understand that it could be a huge uh, niche for, for the market. They just prefer to, uh, to be doing whatever they're doing out of inertia. But if they understand that there's no way people want prevention, people are interested um, in this kind of approach, they'll have no choice but to develop this as well. Uh, right now, they, they begin to understand this. Right now, there is um, what they call uh, longevity industry, who is beginning to, to think in these terms. Uh, but uh, still, it's a very tiny segment as far as we can see. Uh, and also, there is sometimes excessive commercialization leads to some um, cutting of, of, of some corners. Uh, so uh, once again, I wouldn't place all the, all the bets on, on, on pharma, on um, the commercial approaches, but some kind of um, uh, synergy of, of various segments, various segments of society. So when people, I guess a lot of people like to describe aging as a disease, even though it's not necessarily, you can't diagnose aging if you were to go to a doctor. If you go to a doctor and say, hey, I have gray hairs, the, the doctor wouldn't come to you and say, yes, you have a disease of aging. Instead, they just say you're getting older. So is it helpful to be calling aging a disease or does it have drawbacks? Uh, well, um, at least in my works, uh, I, I don't um, uh, advocate for calling aging a disease. Specifically, I advocate for calling aging a medical condition, uh, which can be a disease, a syndrome, an underlying um, cause, a risk factor, anything you can address medically. Uh, and uh, that I think is important uh, to recognize aging is something that can be addressed medically, uh, also for prevention. Uh, because right now it's it's not even there. You know, you, you talk <laughs> with, with with physicians, with biologists, uh, aging is not in the textbook. Uh, you know, it's something that's uh, completely irrelevant for, for many for many professionals. So we, at least we we, uh, we need to, to put it on the um, on, on the books as uh, something that can be addressed. It comes something can be treated, and whatever call you call it um, is um, is is uh, less uh, less significant. Um, and the, the next stage is, is really after, after we recognize that aging is a, is a thing that can be addressed medically that we need to tackle, the next stage will be really to diagnose it. Right now, I can call, uh, can call uh, you know, it a disease or a risk factor or anything, but if I cannot measure it, if I cannot uh, predict its behavior, <laughs> just um, um, uh, spinning slogans. 
Um, so uh, the next stage after recognizing it's a problem, we need to, to quantify it to, to, to create some kind of, um, uh, of, of standards or some kind of uh, metrics uh, to, to be able to actually tackle it medically. So it's, it's a, a two-stage two process. Yeah, and I mean, I know something else about that you've strongly advocated for, aside from you know the idea of whether aging is disease or not, is the inclusion of older adults within these research studies. Since I think, I mean, you mentioned, I think in one of the papers that right now, I mean, we take into account kids, we take into account women, right, gender differences, but not really age differences. So I was wondering, do you, do you think older adults should be included in studies that focus on just age-related diseases or diseases as a whole? And the second part is, if we do include them in more studies, do you imagine including only, quote-unquote, healthy older adults or just older adults in general, whether they have some comorbidity or not? Uh, okay, also great question. Uh, first of all, why, why do I advocate for the inclusion of aging into the um, uh, into the general uh, research agendas? People say, okay, the people do medical research. Why do we need to put aging there? Uh, for 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 a few basic reasons. Uh, one is uh, when you consider aging, you have to consider uh, the development in long term. Uh, uh, and other reason is you have to consider um, uh, the, the entire human system, uh, not just the particular symptom, but the entire uh, system, uh, uh, the so-called multimorbidity, because all the people, they, they are characterized by um, multiple diseases at once. You cannot, cannot isolate one from another. And that's why many, uh, many drugs uh, are simply not effective in them. The drugs that we test on the younger people, when you give them to all the people, they're just simply not going, not going to work. Because uh, they have uh, various um, uh, various complexities and uh, and uh, multimorbidities that all the people have. That's why we, we need to consider all the people, especially uh, when we develop drugs that uh, that will be given to them. It, it's not done. It's 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 sometimes it's done, but generally it's very seldom done for for various reasons. Uh, it is easier to see an effect in younger population. Uh, uh, even to publish a paper or, or to, to, to have a proof. Uh, when you go to all the population, you, you get all kinds of um, uh, uh, confounding factors that you don't know how to um, um, extricate. And so it's not done in all the people. But if we really want effective treatments for all the people, we need to do research on all the people. So, uh, and, and if, if, they not, um, uh, if we don't force them, pharma will not do it. Uh, so we do need to mandate um, excluding, including all the people. Actually, it is already in the mandate. It's already in the international um, uh, harmonization uh, requirements um, uh, for drug development to include uh, all the people in drug tests, but it's not done uh, for, for the reasons I just mentioned. But we just simply need um, more enforcement. We, we simply need to, to, to mandate it clear that at least for, for those uh, treatments that will go to all the people, all the people have to be included. And it goes to vaccines as well. By the way, vaccines are also mainly uh, tested on, um, on younger population uh, and then and, and, and given to, to everybody. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a very ma major point of advocacy, major um, uh, point of policy that we need to, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to promote. And uh, the 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 the, uh, the other questions: Do we need only the the um, uh, sick people? Do we need to the healthy people? I would say we need everybody. Simply for comparison, uh, you know, uh, it, sometimes <laughs> uh, what they do is they compare uh, young and healthy people with old diseased people, and then they get a wonderful effect with p uh, with a p. Uh, Zero 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 zero, uh, but uh, if, if actually compared all people, all the diseased people, all healthy people, you may have a much uh, more salient effects. But it's, it needs to be done. So uh, we need uh, all kinds of populations, but uh, definitely to include all the people and definitely to look at the um, at the effects at the longer term.
uh, you don't just uh, um, uh, exhaust the research in, in cross-sectional analysis, um, but also need to, to, to see longitudinally um, how, how the things uh, develop. Hmm. So fortunately here at I'm a Mortal, Ilya, we've been able to speak to a lot of people and gather their opinions on what they think will happen or their worries with how society would change when age-related diseases no longer exist or we're able to die from things other than just aging. So some of the things they've come up with are social stagnation, uh, increased basic education, aka university becoming the new basic education lover. Um, so what do you think in terms of what kind of socioeconomic problems we might experience or what might be exasperated aside from a loss in quality of life? And are these problems big enough that we should just ditch the idea of longevity and living longer? Of course not. Uh, first of all, uh, the, those people should read my, my books, uh, especially the article uh, <laughs> frequently asked question on, on health span and lifespan extension. The, all those questions are really standard. You know, you you, uh, you think a few minutes about the topic, you immediately come up with all those arguments about oral population and boredom and, and uh, stagnation and everything. That's how the, the human mind works. It's uh, it's, it's used to, to, to a certain uh, time frame. And if you can imagine another frame, you immediately start um, imagining problems. Um, uh, some say it's a part of rationalizations, uh, you know, the, the um, sour grape syndrome. Uh, you remember in the, um, in the fable, uh, the, when the fox uh, couldn't reach the grapes, uh, he started uh, saying that those grapes are sour. Uh, so um, it's a part of that. Uh, some people are not uh, aware that, uh, that this is even possible. So that's a part of the rationalization. The, if you don't think something is possible, that's uh, probably also undesirable. Uh, but uh, all those um, all those arguments uh, exist, uh, and uh, they can all be addressed uh, regarding stagnation. Actually, um, uh, we could argue that uh, you need a longer and healthier lifespan to to be able to to learn something. Right now, people just die in their infancy without uh, being able to to learn anything. Um, and uh, if, if you're talking about freeing space for the young, uh, well, that's uh, that could be a concern, especially in academic frameworks. Uh, but uh, uh, we need to, to understand that we don't have to, to uh, kill and eat our professors to, to, to allow <laughs> our, our young to develop. We, we need to think of some kind of um, creative framework where also the, the, the young talent can, can find its place. Uh, and um, and for, for the young themselves, you know, uh, once again, you don't have to, to wait for, for, for the old people to die. You can just develop um, something for yourself. And if uh, you develop it, it's yours. Nobody can take it from you. So um, I don't believe in this kind of, 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 of strife. Actually, we, we, we do speak about intergenerational solidarity um, as a solution to, to, uh, to the aging challenge. You know, we, we, we don't kill our grandparents and parents. We, we live together, we, we, we love each other. So um, I wouldn't uh, speak a bit um, in terms of, of strife, but in terms of uh, cooperation of, of solidarity. Uh, and in, in terms of, of uh, resources, uh, once again, uh, 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 we shouldn't think of our resources as finite. Uh, you know, uh, we learn to, to expand our resource base uh, very considerably um, from a few million people who, who lived uh, a few hundred years ago to, to billions now, and uh, we will still uh, have something to eat. So uh, uh, I, I basically don't believe in any uh, limit on resources that's because of which we need to, to kill the old people. Because when you say, uh, why are they occupying space? You should say, let's kill them. <laughs> it's the same. Well, let them let them die. Uh, I, I don't subscribe to, to this view. I think uh, we can uh, find uh, uh, ways uh, ways around it. 
Okay, well, thank you for some of the encouraging words, Ilya, about our future, because let me tell you, I don't want to be part of a dystopia nightmare. Hopefully, we're doing the right thing if we're encouraging life extension. Um, but let's focus on the present right now, which is, you know, there's not, like I said, we talked about, there's no magic pill, but there is an industry, aside from the longevity industry, called the age tech industry, who care about, you know, the needs and wants of older adults, whether that be mobility, independence, loneliness, all these different things. I was wondering, this is sort of a two-part question, but how long do you think this industry will exist? And that ties to when do you think our, you know, by 2050 or 2060, how far do you think we'll progress in terms of the longevity space, in terms of, you know, some sort of therapy? Uh, well, uh, aging definitely has its place. Um, uh, we have to understand both the, the biomedical intervention, the preventive intervention, and the age tech intervention have the, the, as the goal uh, helping the older people. Uh, the, the distinction is that age tech uh, wants to help all the people uh, when they're already frail. Uh, by, by the very definition of assistive technology, you have to assist them, they, they cannot function. And uh, biomedical intervention, the longevity intervention, want to prevent them uh, uh, from, uh, from going to this state. So basically, our, our goal is to put age tech out of business uh, as, as soon as possible. Uh, but we understand that right now, uh, when we don't have any comprehensive treatment or effective treatment uh, or proven treatment, that there is this, uh, a place for age tech. Uh, so uh, it should be a lot. But once again, we should not cancel each other. We shouldn't um, see each other as competition. Uh, they, they have a place now. Uh, maybe later they will be removed or, or uh, longevity um, therapies will be unsuccessful and they will remain and will die out. But right now we have to give space for, to, for everybody, for every approach. Uh, for example, in the call for research proposals um, uh, that I helped uh, to formulate uh, a few years ago in Israel, uh, they had uh, three uh, parts uh, for, for aging research, one biomedical, one technological, and one social. So uh, we, we need to give space to every approach because once again, you don't put all the eggs in one basket. We see um, uh, which one uh, uh, which one can can help, but we definitely need space for for biomedicine, for uh, for preventive um, uh, anti aging, and hopefully we'll put uh, aging and uh, aging tech out of business. I feel like you've built the perfect transition for me to ask my next question by speaking about Israel. For the audience listening, uh, if you're not aware, Marvin and I were both based in Toronto, Canada, and uh, Ilya is located in Israel. So we want to ask you, Ilya, in Israel currently, what advocacy and policy actions do you focus on promoting within Israel or even internationally? Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, so uh, all those topics we discussed are basically um, uh, on the agenda that we promote. Uh, we have quite an active organization here in Israel, VETEC, um, uh, uh, the Movement for Longevity and Quality of Life, which is uh, as a scientific advisory board, uh, basically um, with representatives from all the universities in Israel, and uh, we organize discussions in Knesset. Uh, we actually put uh, the topic of uh, health and longevity research, development, and education into, into the Israel Master Plan on Aging that was uh, published by Knesset. Uh, we, we helped to formulate a few calls for research proposals because uh, I think it's a very strong um, uh, tool to, to encourage the field, uh, the call for research proposals. We actually don't argue, uh, we don't advocate for any of our projects. We're real advocacy organizations. We want um, uh, open tenders. We want um, open competition. And uh, we ourselves we didn't get one uh, one penny from, from those calls. Um, uh, so our program uh, consists of three parts, um, increasing funding for, for aging research, uh, in the in the relevant frameworks, uh, increasing education on aging, 
uh, generally, not just in academia, but in all walks of life. And uh, the third is uh, developing uh, biomarks of aging, de developing um, uh, predictive metrics for, for aging-related ill health as a way to, um, uh, to um, uh, encourage testing, to encourage uh, uh, research and intervention. So these are the three points, and uh, we we're doing our best. You know, we have very little funding, but uh, you know, we, we, at least we we, we we achieve something. And I hope uh, that we continue our advocacy. Now we have um, a government. Uh, finally, after four elections, I uh, hope we can uh, we can do. And um, and uh, also internationally, the, there we have similar agendas. I, I, I contribute, uh, for example, in the International Longevity Alliance. So we have about thirty. Uh, uh, NGOs, uh, 30 non-profit associations, longevity associations from 25 countries, so hopefully soon there will be one from Canada as well. And, uh, and they all have very similar agendas, like uh, we have in Israel, uh, in every country, they, they do lack um, uh, public funding, they do lack education, and they do lack uh, metrics uh, for aging. And I hope uh, we can uh, develop it uh, also internationally. So that's my main focus. I may not be so productive in terms of research, but less in terms of activism, uh, we can make some difference. Well, it's great that Israel's so involved. Like I know a lot of the countries, I mean, maybe it's just based on who's from that interview, but we interview a lot of people from Canada, from the US and the UK, but um, it's great. Yeah, Israel's involved. I mean, even reading, I think in Dmitry Kaminsky's book, one of his longevity industry books, he had a chapter, I think, or written about Israel uh, deep knowledge ventures in general, they pointed out Singapore and Israel as some places to look out for in the future. So that's great to hear that you get involved. Um, I did want to ask, and this is sort of an off-tangent question, but I'm sort of wading into the waters of transhumanism here. And it's just because I'm not aware of what Israel's like. I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the Canadian climate. If I go on the street and I tell someone, oh yeah, are you transhumanist or not? I can kind of expect what answer to get. But in terms of Israel, is it okay? To, I don't know if you're transhumanist, Ilya, first of all, but is it is it okay to be openly transhumanist in Israel? Like, is it looked down upon? Is it looked up to? Is there any sort of, I don't know, perception of what it really means to seek super longevity, super intelligence, and these sort of concepts? All right. Uh, so first of all, um, uh, yes, I do identify as a transhumanist sometimes. Not always. It depends on the on the audience. And why did I uh, identify as a transhumanist? Because uh, when I started uh, to get involved uh, in the early in the century, about in 2002, uh, there wasn't a longevist movement as such that you say, okay, this is life extensionist movement, longevist. When you were interested in life extension, uh, you had to uh, uh, to get with the transhumanist because that was a part of, of, of the overall uh, transhumanist ideology. That's uh, why I think many people identified with, with this ideology. Um, uh, here in Israel, I didn't have any um, any. Uh, um, um, repercussions and any uh, drawbacks uh, by identifying uh, with as a transhumanist actually it actually helped me to uh, to get a few uh, publications in the press because uh, people were curious. Uh, but I would say it's not very relevant uh, whether I call myself or not uh, here in Israel at least. Uh, there's no danger, but also no benefit from it. You understand? Uh, you know, I say transhumanists, okay, so so uh, we we need to speak more in terms of policy, in terms of actual research. Um, yeah, so um, all those uh, the titles, all those labels are, are less relevant. I, right now, I prefer to identify as a longevist or life extensionist, because that, that's my belief. If you take transhumanism as a whole, considering all the human enhancement they, they speak about, I'm interested in life extension. You know, I may be super smart, but if I'm dead, <laughs> there's, no, there's no much use. Um, so um, I focus uh, on, on life extension. I think it's the main um, uh, point of advancement. But other things will we'll, uh, we'll get together with it. Uh, also being smart, you know, it's difficult to, to extend your life 
if, if you are stupid. So, <laughs> but those, those are secondary. The main, uh, the main uh, the goal is, 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 uh, is surviving, continue mm -hmm. to survive. So once again, I just want to emphasize that me and Marvin were very unfamiliar with the culture and religious influences in Israel. But speaking on that topic, is there anything cultural or religious that influences how people in Israel perceive or accept life extension? Uh, well, uh, once again, uh, in my book, I have um, uh, the chapter on um, uh, longevity and the Jewish tradition. And actually, you can find a lot of uh, a lot of um, um, uh, support in, in the Jewish tradition for for the ideas of life extension, even of biotechnology. Generally, um, uh, Judaism is, is a little permissive uh, when it comes to, to saving human life. Uh, so uh, I would say permissive, uh, encouraging when it comes to say, human life, it's the main value, you know, all the other uh, considerations uh, are put aside. So in this, uh, in this way, uh, Israel may be, may be um, a fertile ground, but uh, once again, the, the, uh, uh, in every religion, I believe that there are undercurrents in favor of life extension and uh, against it. Also in, in, in Judaism, you can find uh, rabbis who say that, you know, um, now life is limited, uh, 120 years. Uh, uh, and the same, the same undercurrents you can find in, in Christianity, in Islam, in atheism. Even you know some atheists believe that uh, you know it's okay to, to be eaten by worms at a certain time. It's just the way nature works. Others uh, think that uh, this is our world and we have to continue. So their life extension is both the most atheist and um, and religious. Uh, but I would say that, that there are no special uh, obstacles to to the development of, of life extension in Israel. Actually, it's a very technological-minded culture. It's a very scientifically-minded culture, also education-minded culture. But once again, the 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 inertia is, is still very strong. Also in Israel, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a paradise for, for for life extension. The inertia is still strong. Still, very little resources are dedicated to it. You see, um, of the, the entire research budget. The, Zero is dedicated to aging per se, in though university work on this uh, from, uh, from university grants and uh, international aid, uh, international um, uh, funds. So, uh, so work is done here, but uh, it's never enough. Until we really have a, a verifiable uh, health life extension, nothing is enough. So, so I do hope um, uh, this field develops also here in Israel in, and everywhere. Oh, well, thank you for sharing. Yeah, like we are not informed on Israel. So we're very happy to have, you know, international collaboration with all these other countries. It's it's awesome, really. It, it, um, and it, I just have, sorry. You know, I just have to say, you say international collaboration, it's a very big um, uh, booster for, for, for the field, uh, simple international collaboration. For example, we, we initiated, I just have to interject it. Uh, it's, it's very important. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Uh, uh, just uh, uh, we initiated um, uh, a program called Barrex Aging. Written Israel Research and Academic Association Aging. Um, I had the honor to write the first draft um, uh, of this call for research proposals with an emphasis on, on prevention and, and uh, multimorbidity in geroscience. And uh, 200 labs uh, submitted proposals 100 from the UK, 100 from Israel, uh, 14 labs got funding. Uh, simply by collaboration, you improve the quality of your work. Uh, not just the scope, even the quality of your work, you publish in higher impact journals simply by collaboration. So I think uh, if we um, encourage uh, collaboration between countries, I think it uh, will be a very strong leverage for the field. Uh, yes. Okay, well, why don't I ask another thing then? Because I know I know when I first emailed you, I was aware of your mathematics back, like involvement in mathematics actually before your advocacy, which is interesting because I know you done, you're way more involved as an activist. But I do know you had, you're involved in something called the Quantified Longevity Guide, if that's correct. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Because we're, we're 
once again, I don't think I've heard that many people involved in it. Maybe it's more of an Israel thing. I don't know if it's something that um, maybe I'm just not aware of, but do you mind describing it to our audience? Uh, yes, uh, thanks. Uh, that's our collaboration uh, with Dr. David Bloch. Uh, so when we speak about this project, that's always me and Dr. David Bloch. He's the mathematician. I'm more involved in, in the biological um, the part and the interpretation part. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, we, we, we advanced, as I searched from the start, uh, uh, a major step in the development of the field, I believe, is, is quantification. Quantification of aging, uh, prediction, um, of age-related disease, uh, quantifying the effects of intervention, because you know you can wave your hands all you want and call it a disease and take all kinds of pills, but unless you can measure it, uh, what you have now and what you have after intervention, uh, that there is no way to to, to advance. And we try to contribute. I don't uh, say we we solve the problem, but uh, we try to contribute. Uh, we we develop uh, some information theory-based metrics, uh, like um, uh, based on on uh, and normalized mutual information and entropy. And uh, we started this commitment at the European Commission um, uh, to advance this topic because it, it wasn't there. There, there were uh, various kinds of um, uh, frailty evaluation, but uh, just you know to dig deeper, to, to, to try to evaluate multimorbidity and uh, uh, predict um, aging health, it was there. I would say it, it played much of an impact. Uh, it had much of an impact, but you know we, we do our part. I hope there will be many initiatives like that. Uh, so uh, they can all uh, combine synergistically. Uh, th there are other people uh, doing uh, similar work, uh, also using what they call artificial intelligence or machine learning, basically with the same rationale to, 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 uh, to predict uh, age-related disease and to measure interventions. Uh, but uh, we, we do our part. We, we don't use uh, machine learning. We actually use uh, very simple algorithms, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, just uh, uh, some uh, decision uh, decision tree models, so, but it's still you know important in some way. So I'm going to shift the conversation once again a little bit into this idea of biomarkers. We've spoken to many people on what they think biomarkers should be, what biomarkers are, so many different things relating to them. So do you think we should be looking for biomarkers that age, or sorry, that match with chronological age or with age-related declines? I think uh, we need both. I think we need both. Uh, 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 there is uh, the ground to, to say that uh, we can uh, see some kind of norm by, by, by averaging um, uh, uh, say a certain, uh, uh, a certain aging at certain ages, uh, but there are also an, uh, an approach to, to predict uh, uh, specific disease or multimorbidity. And I would even name a third approach, uh, which is not even discussed very often, is the longitudinal approach to make those uh, biomarks self-referential, to see how um, your own um, homeostasis works or, um, uh, or homeodynamics works, uh, to see if you know if you are in a disarray, just to look at every organism as, as a, a self-sufficient system. Uh, and for that, once again, you need uh, models of aging, your theory of aging, uh, we're not there. But I would say all this research needs to be encouraged uh, very strongly. You know, people often focus on, on therapies, you know, they want to, to, to have the pill, but uh, there's no pill and no treatment without, uh, without diagnosis, without uh, measuring the effects. Well, if we're also talking about models then, because I know right now the animal testing is, it's, the progress is not really substantial. It's not what we're really hoping for. And one, I think you proposed as well, but a few other people have proposed this idea of in silico testing. I was wondering how it would exactly work, right? Because longevity is something that seems to be sort of temporal in nature, where 
you can't really see its effects unless you observe it over time. So for in silico, what exactly are you, do you have in mind? And do you think it could replace animal testing as sort of a standard? Uh, well, first of all, we need to understand that uh, any in silico uh, or any modeling needs to be based on data. Uh, so our main problem is not even the, the algorithm, not even the, the, um, uh, the computational platform, it's the data, and data can be collected longitudinally, um, uh, temporal, as you say, and then we'll build the longitudinal uh, models um, uh, uh, or uh, cross-sectionally, and then we, we build comparative models, but we need data, and uh, data is still insufficient, and there is um, problems in the quality of data. Uh, so, uh, so that's that's the main step that prevents uh, the the wide application. With uh, many of such uh, um, so-called artificial intelligence or machine learning models are are irreproducible simply because they use a very specific set of data, and if you apply it uh, on another set, they not necessarily show the same results. It's kind of a heuristic ad hoc. Um, uh, developments. So, so there, there are a lot of um, the problems preventing it wider use, but it's getting more uh, more widely used. Uh, and I once again, I, I wouldn't uh, again pit uh, one against the other. Like we don't pit um, tech against uh, biomedicine. We, we try to work them together. So here as well, we, we need more animal studies. And, uh, we need more human studies. We need more age silico studies. Uh, and for all that, we need more funding. Great. So Ilya, we've spoken for almost an hour now, and we're near the end of our podcast. Just before we wrap up, I wanted to ask if there's one thing you want the audience and the people listening to take away from today, what would you want that to be? Uh, yes, uh, I just want them to uh, to become more involved, to become more interested in this in this topic. Uh, as we said, uh, the, there is a uh, epic battle between people who ignore this topic and uh, those who uh, who are interested and want to advance it. And I hope uh, the, can, the camp of people who want to advance it uh, grows and encompass uh, and the whole world, that everybody in the world uh, advances it, not just gets interested uh, in it, but actually becomes involved. And there are many ways that even uh, not a scientist can become involved as, as, as an advocate, as an activist. So I, I, I hope that the whole world uh, sees health and longevity as a goal, as they see uh, health as a goal without the longevity component. Um, so that's uh, that's my uh, my main message. Let's get interested. Let's get involved. And uh, thank you for for this podcast, which is also part of raising awareness of getting people involved, getting them interested. No, we love having you here. And I mean, hey guys, listening. If you're listening, this is about like life and death, your life and maybe your death. So it seems really important. And of course, um, you mentioned a lot of things today, like policy, advocacy, history, everything. I mean, we've, I don't think there's a single base we haven't touched. Maybe economics, but we don't know too much about that, to be honest. Um, but for people who are really interested in your work, where can they go to learn more about it? Um, uh, you're welcome to visit my uh, my um, website, longevityhistory.com, where I concentrate most of my research. So you can find my books uh, there free of charge that you can download. And also, please uh, uh, visit our, uh, our um, uh, advocacy organizations, uh, our societies. Uh, you can just uh, Google the International Longevity Alliance and the Vedic Association, International Society on Aging and Disease, and uh, also see where you can uh, get involved and fit in. Uh, happy to also contact uh, personally if there's some um, serious propositions for collaboration. Great. So for everyone listening, any of the links or things we discussed today will be in the description below. Once again, thank you, Ilya, for coming on to I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank great initiatives. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>